You are listening to the Seeking Wild Beauty podcast. My name is Harmony Nixon, and I'm a spiritual teacher and healer. And each week, I will be diving deep into topics about spiritual practices, embodied intuition, sacred creativity, conscious living, and the call of soul, all to help you unearth your deepest truth. So grab your journal and get cozy. Well, hey, loves. I hope you all are doing well wherever you are. Go ahead and make sure you have your journal handy and you have a warm cup of something delicious because we're going to dive deep today as my guest, Mara Starling, comes on. Um, She's here to talk about Welsh witchcraft. Mara was born in North Wales, raised on the Isle of Anglesey, and she's a native Welsh speaker. She's an author with Llewellyn Worldwide and her debut book, Welsh Witchcraft, released in 2022. She was just celebrating her first year book anniversary. Mara now runs a Welsh border-based coven and delivers classes, talks, and workshops. And you can find her on all of the social media platforms, which all the links are listed below. So I'm really excited to share and have her voice on the podcast to share her wisdom and to share her insights. So let's just go ahead and dive right in. Thank you so much for being here. I'm so excited to chat with you today. I appreciate you being on the podcast. And yeah, I'm just excited to have you here. (laughs) Thank you for inviting me. I'm happy to be here. (laughs) Of course. So do you want to go ahead and um, talk a little bit about yourself and, you know, share what you do and all of that? Let's get us started with that. Oh, gosh, I'd love to. So my name is Mara, Mara Starling. I'm originally from um, a island right at the very top of North North Wales uh, called Anismorn, the Isle of Anglesey. And I grew up there, which uh, it was a, we- a Welsh-speaking community. So I grew up immersed in the Welsh language and um, didn't really speak English until I went to high school. And even then, it was only in English classes. <laughs> so um, I was immersed in the Welsh culture and the Welsh language, but I always had a fascinating and a love for mythology and magic and witchcraft and all these wonderful things. I still remember my first first day at school, like as in first day of primary school when you're about five or six years old, standing in front of my whole class and my teacher saying, oh, what do you like? What kind of things do you like? And I said, oh, well, I like mermaids and witches and fairies and all these things. And I think my teachers uh, glomped onto that fact about me and they pushed so heavily that I learned more about these things. Um, I was very fortunate because I went to a a school growing up in a rural place. My school only had 26 students in total. So they really pushed this idea of like individualizing everyone's experience at school. And um, they, they introduced me to mythology and folklore, which was Welsh in nature. And that essentially became my whole identity (laughs) for the rest of my life. Um, So I, kind of fell in love with Welsh mythology and folklore and growing up in an area where I like to call it now the mythic landscape because the myths and legends and folklore that I loved and loved to read about were in the land that I grew up in. So um, for example, I grew up in the village called Aberfrau and in one of um, our myths, our Welsh myths, Aberfrau is where a certain goddess gets married. So it was like these stories were right there and they didn't seem like, you know, I, I often hear people talk about fairy tales and myths and they talk about it in a very, well, once upon a time in a place far, far away. And I'm like, that's not my experience. My experience was that my stories happened down the road. Yeah. <laughs> Because of this love that I had for mythology and folklore, it led me down this very magical path. 
And I ended up um, meeting up with a mentor when I was like 14, uh, becoming a witch, essentially, um, being trained in all sorts of witchcraft and magic and paganism, meeting all sorts of really interesting, whimsical folk. And it's led me to here, where I am now an author and a teacher who specializes in Welsh folk magic and folklore and mythology. And I like to share as much as I can about that side of my culture online, because I feel like it gets overlooked a lot. So I try and do as much as I can about it. I think you do a wonderful job. I love watching your videos on YouTube. They're always so cozy and inviting and just, you know, the witchy feel, you know, it feels like I'm sitting down to have some tea with a friend. And I love that. And I actually found you because I'm researching all of my ancestral roots, which is completely a cauldron of lots of different things. But I'm particularly drawn to the Celtic side of where my ancestors are in Ireland, Scotland, but also in Wales. And so I was been drawn to that side for a little while. And that's where I found you. And I was like, Oh, my gosh, well, I have to have you on the podcast. And so I'm so glad you decided to come. And your book is called Welsh Witchcraft, a guide to spirits, lore and magic of Wales. So and you just had your first year anniversary with your book. And so that's so exciting. So tell me, like, what what made you decide to write this? What was the inspiration for it? Yeah, so I, growing up in Wales, I kind of, I, I tell this story a lot, but it's really important to me. It's like, it's something that is profoundly a huge impact on who I am as a person. But growing up in Wales, I didn't really have any pride in my cultural identity because Um, I was a very queer, very weird, very kind of whimsical person growing up in a really rural kind of area, which for me as a young child, I always saw as very backwards and very kind of restrictive in the way that they were. Because um, if you weren't someone who was into sports or farming, you essentially did not exist in that area. And so for the longest time, I couldn't wait to leave home. And I didn't feel as a connection to the place that I came from or the culture that I came from um I even even my accent like I often get told uh you don't sound Welsh because I don't have a very very strong Welsh accent and a lot of that comes from the fact that when I was younger I had this shame over my accent because I wanted to move away to a bigger city that was more kind of you know flashing lights and all sorts of um different types of people so that I felt like I would fit in more And it was via magic and witchcraft and paganism and folklore and all these beautiful things that I found my way back to my culture, essentially. So even though I grew up speaking the language and um, being immersed in the culture, I still felt that disconnect. And these stories and these elements of our law helped me to connect to that on a deeper level and helped me to go, I deserve to be proud of being Welsh, just as anyone else in this place does. And, you know, through learning about various um, pieces of folklore and magic, I also learned about historical figures, which were very important in the in the movement of like modern magic and such that had connections to Wales. And I was like, there we go. See, I can be one of those. I don't have to feel out of place in this world because I am part of this world. And that's when I started really diving into it. And when I was just starting out, um, so I have always been interested in witchcraft, as I said, and magic and all those things. And my grandmother used to read tea leaves and crystal balls and all these things. And she kind of um, introduced me to that world. But when she died, I wanted to feel closer to her and feel a connection to her. And when I was around 12 years old, I started finding books in charity shops and things like that. 
um, about witchcraft and about magic and about spells and all these things. And I started doing them and it got to the point where I annoyed my mother so much talking about magic and witchcraft that she went, you know, I love that you're passionate about this. She was lovely. She never like tried to play down my passion or try to stop me from going for it. But she said, I love your passion, but I know nothing about this. So stop talking to me about it and I'll give you some advice. Down the road, across the bridge and down that little winding path, there is a woman called Julie and she is a witch. Go talk to her. And I went and she was, she was a witch. So she kind of mentored me and introduced me to a lot of elements of witchcraft and magic. Then I met the Anglesey Druid Order and I started really developing myself. But throughout my teenage years, when I was just getting into this, I always wished that there was a book that just encapsulated all that it means to be both a magical practitioner, a spiritual person, and Welsh, like all of these things, how do they all connect and how can we draw upon our cultural kind of heritage and legacy to inspire and inform our practice? Because I started noticing that all the witches in my local area were very inspired by cultures far, far away, where they were inspired by gods and goddesses of Egypt and Greece. And they were like, there was a few people who had a morbid fascination with um, indigenous cultures across the world. And I kept looking at them and going, but we have that. We have similar things like this. Why is nobody talking about our gods and goddesses, our sacred sites, our sacred practices, the things that we have been denied for so long, like we need to reclaim these things. And so for years and years, I just kept sulking and saying, oh, why can't there be a book about this? Why can't there be a book? And my friend, Christopher Hughes, who is the chief of the Anglesey Druid Order is an author with Hewellyn. So he had a few books, but they were very focused on druidry and spirituality in that respect. And I wanted witchcraft, I wanted magic, you know? Yeah. Um, so eventually I, I, I told him that I felt this way, that I wanted a book like that. And he turned around and he said, well, if you want that book so bad, write it make it yourself and that's what kind of happened I ended up writing it after years of telling myself that I wasn't good enough to be that person to do it and after years of um, waiting for someone else to come along I just went oh screw it I can do this and then the book was born that's amazing so oh my gosh your journey sounds so powerful of like reclaiming that heritage and reclaiming all of that magic there I think that's really powerful and how you talked about how you know you didn't really feel like you belonged, but you really wanted to root in and claim your space in the world I think a lot of us can you know identify with that and like that feeling of not belonging and um, at least here in America and, and in my own experience, I feel like I'm mixed from everywhere. <laughs> and so I don't have my own roots. And so that's why like books like yours is really amazing because it's helping me at least connect with my ancestors and pull that magic, you know, pull those threads of my own magic. And so it's really powerful. And I'm so glad that you actually did write that book and, you know, got over the doubt and stuff. <laughs> How did you do that? How did you get over the doubt of just waiting for someone? Because a lot of people do that. A lot of people will you know, they'll sit around and wait for somebody else to take action, but you did, you finally took it. Oh gosh, I think um, a lot of gin. <laughs> but, um, I, I did spend years and years telling myself that I wasn't the right person for the job because I'm not, so I still tell people to this day, you know, like when they pick up my book, I say, I'm not an academic, I'm not a historian. I didn't study this stuff. But what changed my mind a lot was I was sat talking to a friend one day and I said all these things. I said, you know, I haven't studied the history of witchcraft at university. I'm not an academic. I'm not any of these types of people. How can I write a book of that thing when I am not an expert in the field? 
Um, I haven't studied it deeply in that way. And she turned to me and she went, but Mari, you've lived it. You have literally lived it. Like there's there's a big difference between studying something and living it. And you are in that category of you've lived it. And that really empowered me. That gave me that sense of it's true because as much as I sit here and I say, I haven't studied this at an academic level, I sort of have because I grew up in the place where these practices originate. And a lot of people don't realize how interwoven into the culture it still is to this day. It's one of my biggest... Um, uh, I suppose pet peeves online is when people talk about the Celtic world and Celtic practices as if it's something of the past, as if it's, you know, the Celtic culture of the past that has been lost and destroyed. But the people of Wales today still speak a Celtic language. We still learn about Celtic myths. We still uh, study the Celtic bardic tradition at high school and stuff. So it's kind of like it's still interwoven into the culture. So though I didn't go to university to study like Celtic studies or something, I did study the Mabinocchi, which is the Welsh kind of body of mythology and Welsh bardic poetry and tradition, um, as well as various other things from our folklore and such at school. I learned about it from a very young age and did it through to high school. And I also immersed myself in it. So um, learning about these myths, not just from a classroom, but we also went to watch theatrical productions. And I took part in theatrical productions of these stories and they were part of everyday life. And as I said, I grew up in that mythic landscape. So it wasn't just, we're going to learn the story of Branwen, one of the uh, kind of goddesses of Wales nowadays she's seen as, but she was uh, kind of a princess in the mythology. And she, you know, wasn't this distant figure because we went to visit her grave and the place that she was married and all these different things. And it was just right there in front of us. So though I had these doubts about like being authentic enough to be able to do this or pull, pull this off, I eventually kind of convinced myself that, you know, I've lived it. And if nobody else is willing to do it, then I need to do it because um, I was tired of waiting. And I think that was a big part of it as well, was being tired of waiting for someone <laughs> to come along. And um, it's still something that I get really passionate about to this day because I, um, maybe I'm getting on my high horse now and giving a bit of a rant, but I will end that by saying, I don't believe in competition. So if somebody else came along tomorrow and wrote a book on Welsh witchcraft, I would welcome it because I want more diverse voices talking about this subject. And I've had a few people come to me and say, you know, like I've had more people be positive, but I have had a few people be negative and say, your book wasn't what I wanted. And I, I, I'm really disappointed in it. And I really just want to turn around to those people and go, then write your own. If yeah. you want something specific, do it yourself. Because I, I am just one person and I love... I would love to see more people really going into this subject. So I think I, with that mindset, I just ended up telling myself, I can't have that mindset and not live it. So I have to put it out into the world as well. So yeah, it was a process. It was a journey for sure. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it's a conversation and you know, that it's a starter conversation for hopefully other people will bring their voices in, you know, it's a huge conversation that needs to be continuous, you know? So I think that's really awesome that you started the ball on this, you know? Um, I'm actually really interested in your writing process. And um, did you use any magical practices or any spiritual practices to help you stay motivated, to help you get it done? Like the nitty gritty of getting the book done? Oh, definitely. So I, uh, within Welsh culture, there is this concept that is the very core of everything that I do, everything that I believe in. And that concept is called Awen. And Awen is, 
uh, it translates to mean inspiration. So if you if you looked it up in the dictionary, it would literally translate to mean inspiration or specifically divine inspiration. And it's at the very heart of literally everything that I do, whether that be magic or whether that be writing, anything. And having grown up immersed not only in Welsh culture, but in um, a pagan culture, because, you know, I came to paganism and witchcraft from at a very young age, I was a teenager when I first kind of uh, approached this life. So I've lived by the idea that I need to call upon the Awen um, whenever I'm embarking on a creative journey uh, all my life, essentially. And being an artist, um, I studied performing arts and then dance at university. Awen has always been a very important thing to me because inspiration is important to an artist. And um, when I was writing the book, I really dug into that concept deeply. So Awen, though it translates as inspiration, it is much more than that. It's a very spiritual concept. It's a very uh, magical concept as well. It's very enchanted. And it, it stems from this idea that from the other world within our mythology, there is this force that is pushed out into the air and we breathe that force in. And when we breathe that force in, it challenges and changes something within you and you have to birth something out of that. So Awen inspires us and touches us in a very divine manner. And we then give shape and form to it and give birth to it in the form of our creative uh, kind of projects and such. So it's something that's very rooted in the bardic tradition of Wales, this idea of um, the, the poets used to draw upon this Awen and they used to write about how it emanates from the deep or from the other world. And then it passes through the cauldron of Keritwen, um, the witch goddess or the goddess of inspiration before entering into our breath. And then we breathe it out into the world again. So we give shape and form to it and birth these cool ideas. And that was a huge kind of part of my process of writing was really trying to connect to that force, to the force of Awen, which is inherently magical, inherently spiritual, and um, also connected to a specific goddess, Keritwen. And Keritwen became a very kind of core figure in my life throughout the process. And she still is to this day. I still have a shrine to her in my room. Um, she is this goddess of inspiration, this muse and a witch as well. She's described in a lot of the folklore as a witch, someone who's learned in magic. And so I felt really connected to her and she um, is kind of associated because most of our myths are very rooted in the landscape. And as I said, you can visit the places where people come from and such in the myths. And Keritwen is associated with a place called Bala, which is about an hour down the road from here, from where I live. And um, there's a lake that's associated with her story. So I like to visit there um, as much as I can. And throughout my process of writing the book, whenever I got stuck, whenever I felt like there was uh, just no movement happening in the process, I would call to Kenny Thuen, I would leave offerings for her, and I would draw upon that that otherworldly force that is Awen to try and awaken something inside me. And it always worked. It always seemed to snap me out of any kind of rut that I was in remembering that you know this force comes into us via our breath but it's us that gives it shape and life then via who we are as people and we all kind of need to shape that force in the way that works for us as individuals so that's kind of the core tenet of how I go about creating anything nowadays is I let the awen guide me and then once it's guided me in the right direction I then add shape and form to that 
force and that power that Awen has provided me. So that's kind of a huge element of how it is that I go about creating and working um, in any capacity, uh, but especially when it comes to creating anything that is creative in nature, but also powerfully magical if in nature as well if that makes any sense. Yes, it does. Oh my gosh, you're making me drool. It just sounds so like <laughs> delicious, you know, like that whole process. I love that. And so if you were to share, like how could somebody connect to that right now? Like if you were to guide somebody through connecting with Alwyn, I don't even know exactly how you would do that, but is there a way that you could give somebody an idea of how to connect to it right now? Oh, definitely. So the way that I usually um, try and connect to it is, uh, via a lot of kind of meditation and visualization. So for example, when we look at the Welsh Bardic tradition, they obviously had a very uh, spiritual approach to connecting to this force of Awen and they describe it in various ways. So Awen itself, the word has uh, this really interesting etymology where it probably shares the same root as the word Awel in the Welsh language. And Awel means air or breath or wind so it's connected to the element of air which is where we get the concept of that we breathe it in um so it's connected to the wind and to the air and we have to envision that our end kind of exists everywhere at all times and when we breathe it in we uh, instantly are given those seeds of inspiration into our mind into uh everything that we do and so because it's so associated with the element of air, I like to associate it a lot with sound. So like the, because all that we do, everything that we speak is us essentially manipulating the air around us. Mm -hmm. So I like to read poems that inspire me. I like to sing songs that inspire me. And that kind of awakens that sense of awen within you. Um, and also just embarking on maybe writing your own and figuring that out for yourself as well. That's another way. And that is quite a traditional method of looking at awen because there's even a, I think it's a 14th century poem, which describes awen as various things. Um, but specifically, the poem says, or the awen I sing. So it's not just a force that you can connect to on a very kind of energetic level. It's a force that sings to you and mm. you sing back to it. And it sings in love of itself as well. And there's this concept within our, our coven that we've built upon that idea that when you adore the awen, when you adore this idea of creative divine inspiration, it adores you back. So it gives back to you as well. So when you pursue it, when you read a book that really touches your soul, when you see a view that just makes you want to cry, when you um, you know hear a song that sends shivers down your spine, you are in those moments adoring the awen, you are singing the awen. And so in those moments, you need to listen as well because it will sing back and it will inspire you back as well. So that's kind of how I go about it, in a very poetic way, how I go about it. When I meditate and I visualize the awen, I use a lot of the traditional kind of imagery that has been evoked in poetry. So in that same poem where it says the awen I sing, it then goes, and, and so forth. 
Um, and it translates to mean the awen I sing, from the deep I bring it, it is a connected river which flows. So we have that air quality, but then we also have this flowing quality of water that is associated with awen. So we have to envision that awen flows through us and through the world around us in a very winding, serpentine, watery way. Mm-hmm. And when we envision it like that, we know that we can draw upon it wherever we are. So we not only sing the awen, but we also drink from it as it is a fountain that is keeping, that is constantly spilling out into our world. And yeah, I think it's always there and it's always connected. And I've often heard people refer to it as kind of the Welsh version of the force from Star Wars or something. (laughs) It's just always there and we connect to it in that capacity. And um, so long as you adore the Awen by like, you know, really digging your heels into something that lights your soul on fire, it will adore you back and it will give back to you. So, so long as you never stop endeavoring to be creative and to let those creative facets of your mind and your soul be free to um, explore, then the hour will come to you as well. And yeah, it's it's a complicated thing to talk about, but I hope that makes some kind of sense. <laughs> oh my gosh, yes. Like, I just feel like I'm melting because I'm, I'm in love with life. Like, I feel like if I could date it and touch it, I would, you know, it's just like, I feel like having a love relationship, like a, like a love story with life just makes it so much more beautiful. I mean, that's why my, my podcast is called Seeking Wild Beauty. That's what all my stuff is, is finding that beauty in life. And that, this just sounds like the Welsh lens of what that is. And it's really cool to see all of the different lenses, um, of what something is. It helps you get to know it better. And so I just really love hearing it from that way. And it's just, it is so poetic. And so um, would you say it's just bringing our consciousness to it of like just being aware, if you can just be aware of it, it will transform you. Is that right? Yeah, it's taking those moments to just see what parts of life really speak to you. And that can be absolutely anything, you know, from, as I said, watching a sunset or walking up a mountain and seeing the hills and feeling like every aspect, every atom in your body is literally singing in response to that view. Or maybe it's just sitting in your bedroom listening to Taylor Swift and suddenly, (laughs) you know, you're transported (laughs) to another place in your mind. It's those elements it's like if you can if you can really dive into what those things feel like and where that comes from in your body you're already connecting to Awen um, and it's just experiencing it in a very focused manner it's you know it's really embodying that that creative force and muse as much as possible that's beautiful and I was going to ask you what do you feel like is the heart of Welsh witchcraft and I'm guessing that that would be it right (laughs) oh definitely I think when when I wrote my book um, I said to people that you know I don't care how much money I make from it I don't care how many books sell all I want to do is to inspire people and I think that gives an insight into what is at the core of who we are as people within like a Welsh context is this idea that we want to inspire people and we want people to be inspired. And you see it in our myths and stories and stuff as well. There's There are places in the Welsh landscape that is said that if you go and spend a night there, you will either go completely insane and lose your mind entirely, or you will become divinely inspired. Mm-hmm. So it's this idea that if you're not divinely inspired, then you are basically insane and you've lost <laughs> your marbles entirely. So to live a life where you are inspired is the goal essentially to live an inspired and touched life by that force that our force oh wow 
That is awesome. I want to book my ticket right now. <laughs> I'm <laughs> hang out and go lay on the landscapes, be by the mist. Oh my gosh. So um, what would be your favorite myth or your favorite story from your whole thing there? Like if you could pick oh, one, obviously it's probably pretty hard. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, there's a lot. So to give kind of in case anyone's listening that doesn't know anything about Welsh mythology and folklore, um, our main kind of stories come from this collection called the Mapinoki. And the Mapinoki are four stories and they're called the four branches of the Mapinoki. Um, they're these interconnected stories that talk about all these various entities and deities and people. And um, it's they're all kind of lessons um, in life and, and we can glean a lot from them through that. But then we also have extra stories that have been added onto that over time. And then we have also an entire body of folklore or Hengwerin, which we call them in Welsh. And... Um, the Mabinoki especially is important to me because, as I said in the beginning, I grew up with them. These stories were part of my upbringing and we were told them in school. I took part in theatrical kind of interpretations of them. I went to watch um, versions of these stories being performed. And they are stories that are meant to be performed because when we look at the, the the kind of literary evidence of these myths it doesn't go that far back it stretches back to maybe the ninth century is when these stories started getting written down but they originate from an oral tradition because the welsh are a are a funny group of people we did not write anything down we didn't like the written word all of our culture was emitted via storytelling and via the bardic arts. And that's at the heart of our culture is this idea of the bardic culture, um, the bardic kind of context of our culture. And these stories were meant to be performed. And so I often get people coming to me, especially now that I've got the book out and I'm kind of a, a an authority. I don't like using that word, but an authority. Yeah, but you deserve it. You know. <laughs> <laughs> now that I'm kind of seen in that way, perceived in that way, I get a lot of people coming towards me and they go, you know, I bought a copy of the Mabinogi and I tried reading it, but I'm so confused and I don't get this bit and I don't get that bit. What, what's going on? And a lot of the times that can be easily fixed by just telling people it's because you're looking at the stories as literature you're looking at them as 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 a book as a story to read when they are meant to be performed so if you're struggling to understand the story you know read them aloud perform them to yourself and see how it changes your perception of them and because of that I have a lot of different kind of favorites one of them being um the very very first story in the first branch of the Mabinoki is really close to my heart it's the story of uh, a prince called Puich and he ends up going into the other world and switching places with the king of the other world, Aran. And he goes through this kind of almost initiatory journey. And I think that's a common motif that I'll find is, is very important to me when I read myths, is that a lot of them have this kind of initiatory motif, this idea that, you know, this character, this pivotal character goes through something which changes them entirely as a person, because that's what we all go through in life. It's our story. We go through these experiences that completely transform us into new people. You know, we're constantly... Uh, this might sound morbid, but I'm of the belief that throughout our life, we are constantly dying and being reborn as new versions of ourselves. I like to use the imagery of the snake, you know, we're constantly shedding our skin and we're constantly becoming new people. And Puich in that first branch, he starts off as a very kind of arrogant and rude person. And he's meant to be this prince of one of the greatest kingdoms in Wales. 
And when he goes to the other world and goes through this entire journey, he becomes a much more competent leader in that respect because of all the things that he goes through. Um, there's another story in the second branch of the Mabinogi, which is absolutely tragic. And that's the story of Branwen. And Branwen is, um, the story revolves around this idea that she's married off to the Irish king to try and fix relations between the Irish and the Welsh. She's a princess, her, her, her brother is a king. And um, she gets kind of, I suppose, married off to someone and she is heavily abused, heavily mistreated in the story. And it, it culminates in her befriending a starling, a little bird, and sending that starling over the sea to get help from her brother. And her brother brings an entire army over the Irish Sea to fight for her, to get her back home. And it, all these tragic things happen. And in the end, when Branwen finally gets home onto the island um, and she kind of puts her feet on the ground all the tragic kind of trauma that she's endured while living in Ireland the, the abuse she suffered the death of her son the death of all her friends her brother dies in it she instantly falls and dies of a broken heart at the end and it sounds like an utter tragedy of a story but there is so much magic woven into that story that I absolutely adore it and then, uh, I, I'm sorry to go on, but these stories mean so much to me. You but go like, ahead. <laughs> another story which means really a lot to me is called A Storia Taliesin. And it's a story or a folk tale, I suppose. We don't have any evidence of it being any older than, um, say, the 15th or 16th centuries. And it's the story of the birth of Taliesin. Now, Taliesin is kind of renowned as being the greatest most amazing bard poet and prophet of our culture and there's so many poems that are attributed to him but his birth is this huge mythical saga which is intense and it has to do with Keritwen, the witch goddess she had a son who was hideous and absolutely vile and ugly to look at and she was scared that he was going to go through life um kind of overlooked and cast aside because he was so hideous and so she decided if he cannot be beautiful if he cannot be attractive and pretty that she would at least try to give him knowledge and wisdom so she uses her magical skills to brew a potion of awen a potion of divine inspiration and upon drinking it he would have all the knowledge of the known and unknown worlds so he would become the most intelligent marvelous person to ever live but unfortunately, the potion got drank by someone else. She gets hideously angry. She's like, how dare this person drink this potion that was meant for my son? And then it ensues on this like huge transformative chase across the landscape where um, she turns into a greyhound to chase him down and he turns into a hare to run away from her. And then when she starts catching up to him, he turns into a salmon and jumps in the water and she turns into an otter to chase him down. And then he flies up into the air, turning into a bird. She turns into a falcon. So he turns himself into a grain of wheat and lands on the floor. And so she turns herself into a chicken and eats every grain of wheat in sight. And that's not even the end of it. He's not dead because as a grain of wheat, he's a seed and he ends up in Kenny Twen's belly and turns into a child, a, a baby. And she gives birth to this child. And when she was planning on killing it the minute it was born, because it dared to drink the potion that was meant for her son. But when she gives birth to him, she can't. She just can't bring herself to kill this baby in front of her. So she puts it in a coracle, in a little kind of boat. 
and sends it out into the otherworldly seas where it floats for very many years before being found again. And then eventually when it's found, someone picks it out of the sea, raises it to the sky, sees that it has a shining brow and goes Taliesin, which is what Taliesin means, the radiant or shining brow. Mm. And that was the birth of our greatest poet. But it's such a convoluted story that has so many initiatory kind of aspects to it. It's a transformative story all about death and birth and rebirth and also inspiration and magic. So it's that's probably one of my absolute favorites. And it's one that I've seen a lot of people from various like subcultures across the world take inspiration from. You know, recently I was watching The Sandman on Netflix and there was a whole section in The Sandman where um, Lucifer and Morpheus, the, the Sandman himself, were having a battle of transformation where they were saying to each other, you know, I will become this. Oh, then therefore I will become this and I will destroy you. And that's essentially Kenny Dwen's story of how she became a greyhound and he became a hare, he became a salmon, she became an otter. And that's kind of the, where that comes from. So that's yeah, I cool. think it's something that still inspires a lot of fantasy today. <laughs> Yeah, that's amazing. And so like, how do you how do you take? Um, what do you take from the stories? And how do you apply it to your practice? So the stories to me are kind of filled with the most delicious knowledge and wisdom. And we try and draw a lot from those stories to inspire our lives, but also to propel us into new modes of being. So for example, when we read the story of Taliesin's birth, it seems really complicated and convoluted, but at the end of the day, it is this story of leaving behind the old life and coming into something new and how you know, being made aware of new knowledge does send you on that journey of rebirth. Um, just learning something that you didn't learn before instantly gives you a new view of life and gives you a new kind of perspective to look at life through. Um, but he, especially when we look at Taliesin, he talks a lot about, in his poetry, about the interconnectivity of everything in this world. And that kind of um, influences our animistic approach to everything. So we are, within my personal tradition and my coven, we are animists. We believe that everything in this world holds a spirit. You know, we are not the only things in this world that hold a spirit. And I think it's one um, kind of really conceited attitude that a lot of belief systems have, if I can be rude to say that, is this idea that humans are the only things that are spirited, that are alive. And I don't believe that. I believe everything in this world is inspirited and the world in itself is uh, completely alive. <laughs> and we have um, just about as much right to be here as a tree or a bear or a dog, <laughs> you know? And that story and his poetry helps us connect to that because when you dig deeper into Taliesin's um, kind of poetic uh, sources, you start reading these poems where he describes himself as being all these different things. So he, a lot of his poems will start with saying things like, I have been a drop of rain and yet I have also been uh, an acorn in the ground. I have been a bridge that has withstood the test of time. I have been a river that changed its course. All these things and it gives us that insight into that's what we believe I think is that we're, everything in this world is connected and we are only experiencing a tiny 
glimpse into who we are right now in this body, in this perception of life. And eventually we will move on to perceive life in a different way, maybe as a drop of rain, maybe as a river coursing through the landscape, maybe as an ox that is running through the land. You, you never know what you'll end up as next. So that informs our kind of animistic principles. And then the myths also kind of color our understanding and belief in magic as well, because, um, like Keritwen herself is a witch who is very learned and it teaches us a lot about how we learn and um, understand magic. And when you look at magic within Welsh mythology, it's very, very rooted in the land and a knowledge of the land around you. So when um, Keritwen or one of the other kind of enchanters or sorcerers of our stories, because there are a lot of them, use their magic, it's not described as very kind of, I suppose, otherworldly and um, out of the ordinary it's something quite down to earth and rooted in a knowledge of the land around you so Keritwen when she brews a potion of Awen she doesn't like you know call upon the forces of like evil or anything like that as witches do in some myths she doesn't draw upon some um, cosmic entity to try and do this she calls upon the power of the plants in the natural area she draws upon the spirit of the plants in those areas and she learns about each individual plant. And by doing that, she gains a knowledge of the world around her. Gwithion is a wizard that exists in the Mabinaki and he does the same. He um, conjures an army of trees and he could only do that because he understands the qualities and the virtues of all the different trees. So it's that lesson of, you know, if we want to understand the secret of magic and of life, then the way to go about that isn't to look outward and up there beyond us but to look downwards to the earth to the soil that we walk upon every single day and I think those are the ways that kind of myths tend to play a role in influencing and inspiring our magic a lot that's really beautiful I mean that's really inspiring just that whole thing I love that and I'm really wanting to go and learn more about the Mabinagi like I want to <laughs> study that and I just think that's just so cool so like, what does being a witch mean to you? What does it look like in your daily life and maybe on all levels? Definitely. So being a witch to me is multifaceted and layered. So to me, it is a spiritual practice, but it's also a magical practice. So I am, an, as I said, an animist and a polytheist. I, I believe in gods. I believe in spirits. I believe that the world is naturally inspirited and that everything is kind of connected to one another. But that's kind of my theological and spiritual core. Whereas my witchcraft is inspired by that and yet also um, kind of an expression of how I move in the world, how I exist in this world. And um, witchcraft and magic is very much, um, I suppose, foundational in, in Welsh streams of myth and magic. Um, so we have, as I said, Keritwen, the goddess who is learned in the three arts of sorcery, witchcraft, and divination. We have Gwithion, who is a learned wizard who knows all the virtues of all the trees and thus can summon an army of them. And um, even like figures like Merlin have their origins in Welsh mythology. And so magic and witchcraft in that capacity has always existed here. And it has a very unique identity as well. One way that we are quite unique is not just from a mythological perspective, but from a historical perspective where um so 
for anyone who kind of knows geography, they will know that um, Wales is attached to England and there is no kind of water dividing us. We're not an island. We are very much connected, like sewn to the hip, because what is now England was once Prithain, which was a Britonic land. And the Welsh are kind of the descendants of the indigenous kind of Britonic people who lived in the island of Britain before the Anglo-Saxons and the Normans and the Vikings and all those different groups came in to create what is now the English. So we were pushed to the to the very north, to Scotland, and to the um, west, is it west? Yes, to the west of Wales and uh, to Cornwall down in the south as well. So we were pushed to the very corners of these islands and that's what's created the Celtic nations. Um, and Wales preserved its Britonic kind of origins. Uh, Scotland used to be Britonic as well, but they had an invasion of Gales from Ireland, which went over, so that changed the culture over there. But Wales and Cornwall stayed a Britonic part of this land. But despite the fact that we are connected to England, and there's no hard border between us, we deviated a lot of ways culturally, and we've somehow managed to cling on to our cultural identity and be quite distinct from the English. So our language has persisted. But when we look at the history of witchcraft specifically, it's one way that we can really see the difference between the English and the Welsh, because everybody knows about the witch trials, the time in life when um, loads of people were hanging and burning witches and killing people on accusations. And England had more witch trials per individual county than Wales had as an entire country. We did not persecute witches here, really. I think of all like the written record we have and the courts in Wales were very good at keeping record of these things. We have records going back all the way to like the 1500s, 1400s. And the records show that only around 40 odd which trials happened in Wales. And of those 40 odd trials that happened, only yeah. about three or four people were actually persecuted on those accusations of witchcraft. So um, not many people were actually persecuted on accusations of witchcraft. And you have to ask yourself why, you know, compared to England, which was killing like hundreds of thousands of people, like why were we so different when we're so connected to them? And one of the, the reasons that a lot of people believe this might be is because magic was just an intrinsic part of our community so when the English idea of a witch was kind of seeping into our culture the Welsh would go what do you mean a witch like explain what that means to me and people would go you know people who use magic people who like draw upon demons and things and they'd go oh yeah we don't have those we have like Mm-hmm. grace down the street who gives us charms and healing ointments we have gwen over there who is like helping our animals and giving us protection charms and things we don't have those people who use demons we just have people who use charms and spells they're not witches are they <laughs> and so it, it just it didn't happen here and um, to me being a witch is drawing upon our cultural heritage of magic which is very present in our mythology but also drawing upon a strand of belief in magic, which still persists to this day. If you go ask any Welsh person, even in the modern day, like right now, do you believe in witchcraft and magic? They will tell you no, but 
they all have stories of seeing ghosts, of going to see their local, you know, tarot reader or or um, tea leaf reader, of making sure that they hang a certain type of plant outside their door to keep bad luck away, or making sure that they do not put food on the fire in case they feed the devil. It's kind of like they don't believe that they are that superstitious or believing in magic, and yet they will do anything to ensure that they are not harmed by magic or that nothing bad comes upon them, including going into to these kind of magical superstitious ways so it's still persisting to this day and um, that's been something that's been a core element to who we are when the witch trials did take place they didn't even use the word that we have in the welsh language for if you look it up in a dictionary what is witch in welsh it will tell you it's grach but that word has been misused because it doesn't really mean witch it means hag or monster Oh, that's not good. <laughs> and, yeah, no, not at all. And when they did have, like, on the very rare occasion, these witch trials that did happen, they used the word wits or witses, which is just a borrowing of the word witch from English because they didn't know what that meant. They were like, well, I don't really know what this is, so I'll just borrow the word from English because <laughs> I can't put anything within my cultural context onto this idea. So I have to steal it from English. But despite that, we had loads of terms in the Welsh language to describe magical people from the Gwyddon. So in Welsh mythology, whenever they refer to a witch, they call them Gwyddon, which means those who have knowledge of nature. <laughs> and then you have um, Swinraig, which means charm woman, or Swinor, which means charm man. You have um, Din Haspis, which means those who are familiar or those who understand the world better. Hrebyes, uh, which just means those who use magic for bad. <laughs> and we have so many terms so it's obvious to me that we didn't have a cultural understanding of witch in the same way the English did because um, we didn't use any of those terms when these witch trials happened we instead borrowed an English term because we didn't think any of our native terms fit what was happening or what was going on in the cultural perception so being a witch to me is about drawing upon that mythological heritage but also um, embodying the folk magic folk beliefs that are very much present in the land drawing inspiration and information from those sources and coloring the way that i see the world via that understanding that i have a connection to the world around me on a much deeper level and that is very much uh I guess, expressed in the way that I call myself a suinraig or a guidon, which literally means uh, those who are learned in enchantment or those who are connected to the natural world. Because guidon is the most interesting one because it has, um, in the modern Welsh language, our word for science is guidon iaith. So guidon iaith literally has that word guidon in the beginning. And then yaith, which just means language or ology, essentially. So literally, like you could say that the word for science might come from magicology nowadays, Ooh. because within <laughs> our culture, magic and science were basically one and the same. <laughs> exactly. That's really amazing. Oh my gosh. I love that. Would you say that being a witch is part of a healing path? Because I feel like in my own personal practice, being a witch is being a healer, you know, with yourself and transforming and you know, being able to just be the best version of yourself. Is that how it is for you as well? Absolutely. Yes. I, I, in my book, I wrote a little section on how, um, for all of history, almost witchcraft has been seen as essentially the art of the oppressed. It's a form of, um, kind of, I, I guess 
empowerment that people have turned towards when they felt like there was nothing else they could do. When they have no power in the way that the systems at play are influencing and affecting them, they turned to magic. And that's true for almost every culture, especially cultures that have been oppressed uh, themselves. People who are associated with magic are often, you know, women, people of color, queer people. And it's like, these are the people who live on the fringes and margins of society and have very little power, essentially. And it's interesting that those are the groups that are most likely to turn to these things. So for me, that is very much true because I grew up feeling not quite part of this world as if like I didn't really have a, a reason to belong in this world. And magic gave me that empowerment to say, no, I do belong and I do have the right to exist as anyone else does. And you know what? Not only do I have the right to exist, but I'm powerful. I can make change. I can enact change for myself and for others around me. And my lovely mentor, always said to me you know uh, and he continues to tell me to this day magic always starts with you with internally like something going on with you so when we look to magic when we look to do a working we have to first ask ourselves well how can I change me first before I try changing the world how can I change me because if you can't change you then you can't change anything around you and sometimes by changing you you send a ripple out that does change everything around you you don't realize how much power an individual person has on this world until you kind of embody that lesson of once you've changed you the world kind of changes around you as well because we are much we have much more of an effect on this world than we think both on a mundane level and on a magical level so to me it's always a case of you know if I want to change something I will start with myself before that ripple starts moving outwards and I start like planting the seeds for other things to change and magic is one of the way that I one of the ways that I try and cause those changes to happen so my magic has always been something that I've utilized to better my life um, which might sound selfish, but uh, it's it's something that I've always tried to kind of draw upon to change my life for the better and change the lives of the people around me for the better. If I can do something, if I can cause a change in their life, whether that be through giving them a healing charm when they're feeling ill or by casting a spell of empowerment for them when they're feeling like they just have no motivation to go forward in life anymore. Or even if it's by doing things such as, so a big part of my life at the minute is um, using magic in a very kind of activist manner. So I will, you know, go do the, the 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 actual real life world things, such as going to protests and going to uh, sign petitions and talking to people. But I will also use magic when, when necessary, because it's something that can add to it, I believe. Uh, very recently, we, there's a forest that I'm very, 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 um, kind of familiar with and in love with because I grew up near it and it's a coastal forest which is very beautiful very near and dear to my heart somewhere that I used to go with a lot of my friends to practice magic to do things to celebrate the solstices and such and it was revealed to us that this forest was going to be developed into a holiday park and they were going to um, cut down some upwards of something like 700 trees to do this and I was enraged by this and rather than just you know being angry and sitting there sulking about this whole thing I put that rage to good use I transformed that rage into something positive that could change that situation so I I wrote letters I took part in protests but I also went to the woods and I did a spell I I practiced a bit of magic with my friends we went as a group and we placed a 
uh, protective kind of charm on the place to stop it from being destroyed. And fast forward, it's now been a few years since that plan was put forward. And just last month, that plan was finally officially rejected and said, we're not allowing this. That's not happening anymore. Um, there's too many issues with it and it's it's going to cause too much destruction. So no, it's not happening. And Yay. it's just a relief. And I'm not I'm not as like, you know, uh, uppity to think that that was all because of our string magic, but I like to think we at least played a role in it. And I think that if you could use magic for things like that, it could be healing not only for um, the world, but for the people that like rely on these places for their mental well-being for their physical health everything so yes definitely magic can definitely be very healing in nature yeah that's beautiful oh my gosh i love that now when you're talking about healing charms and like charms for someone to help them get motivated can you share a little bit i don't know if that's too personal or not or just kind of just kind of giving an idea um within kind of welsh the welsh cultural context uh, words play a huge role in like how power works i suppose we see words as very powerful things they can change perceptions they can change things and i think it comes from that idea that you know awen that whole divine inspiration force is associated with air and as i said our voice you know we are manipulating air when we talk so it's almost like if you can move the air then you can move the way things are perceived and the way life exists and things like that and it's a very powerful thing and that is very rooted in the bardic tradition of our culture as well because the bards were considered very powerful people so when you look at the history of our, our, our bards they weren't just poets and court jesters they were like so important to the community they could make or break a king they could make or break a community it was their job to power up the troops like before battle or something it was their job to try and rile them up with their words it was their job to essentially sing the praises of a king during the coronation to ensure that the people saw these kings as fit enough to rule and if they wanted to they could just go no i'm gonna sing how terrible they are instead and the people will not accept you as a ruler because of me so it's kind of a case of who was really in charge was it the kings or was it the poets and bards who were doing these things and that tradition of the bards being very important in culture like that has its roots in older forms of kind of magic where these ceremonies would have had a magical element to them where these bards would not have just been seen as poets but also magicians in their own right they would have been seen almost as a spiritual leader of sorts and so I kind of draw upon that in my practice and you can see it within the folk traditions which kind of came later so the folk magical traditions of the 16th 17th and 18th centuries where we start seeing the work of the Swinith, which were the, 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 the charmers or the enchanted folk who uh, kind of dispensed all these different charms to people for various needs. So there's a very specific charm called the Kretovechan charm, which is a protection charm. And that one is very kind of intense and very near and dear to my heart because I, I, I memorized it from a very young age and I use it whenever I feel unsafe or uncertain. And there's other charms within that tradition for healing and such. And they draw upon this rhythmic bardic quality. They draw upon this like almost sing-songy element of the Welsh language, this power that exists within words and how words can shape and change the world around you. So they do draw upon other things such as, herbs so herbalism is also very important within the magical traditions of wales um 
Wales has one of the oldest kind of herbal healing practices and traditions in all of Europe. Uh, the physicians of Mudvai, which were kind of 12th century herbal healers, had knowledge of herbs that was beyond most of the rest of Europe's understanding of how herbs could be used to heal. And there's a lot of academics who are still scratching their heads at that, like how how did we have such a diverse knowledge of how herbs work in a very almost modern sense? We we knew about the certain like antiseptic and anti-inflammatory um, uses of different herbs and there's a lot of academics who are like why did nobody else figure this out at the same period like what was going on and we even have a mythology that's built around that that our herbal healing practices were gifted to us from fairies so it's kind of like we have so much that is built up around that so it's kind of a mixture of you know working with the land and understanding how the natural world can heal and help and aid us but also understanding that a lot of power comes from words and the way that we shape words, you know, like the right words said at the right time in the right way can literally change the world. And as a as a theatre nerd, as somebody who studied performing arts in university, um, I like to see it that way, especially because the theatre is the perfect example of how words can change things and can cause a change in energy and a shift in life. Because you can go into a theatre feeling your absolute best, but if those actors are good on stage and they present something that's really tragic, via their words they present these monologues and such which can move you they can change the way you feel in an instant in just a click of the fingers they can change the way you feel and that is I think where the power of the bardic tradition comes from is this idea that just with the right words and maybe with an understanding of how the land works around us we can literally change things around us so uh, the Kretovechan charm which is a protection charm goes Kretovechan, Kretolan, Kretoidewakivan, Rakatuver, Rakatan, Rakasarfes Goch Ben Hitan, Kerdais Vanid, Akor Vanid, Awelais Vairwen, Arigobenid, Ayangel, Angel Ivid, Adu Ehid, and Detwith, Argur Huid, Iwis Gwen, and Hinio Hen, Rumpob Enid Ak Ifernamen. So there's this rhythmic quality to it, it almost sounds like a song. But there's a story being woven in it as well. The story is about a man who walks up a mountain and from the top of the mountain, he sees all these miraculous things happening. But specifically, he turns to his right and he sees a man dressed in grey, this grey old kind of wizardy man. And he's drawing a veil of protection over all souls and anyone who recites this charm. So there's within that story, we are creating a narrative in people's minds and planting a seed, which makes them go, yes, I have a veil over me now, which is protecting me from anything that might harm me on a spiritual or emotional level. And it's just little things like that. And healing charms work very much the same in planting that seed of, you know, I'm giving you the power to heal this yourself. And these herbs will also aid it as well. So it, it's it's a lot of kind of understanding how words work, understanding how poetry works, and also understanding how herbs and uh, elements of the natural world work and bringing it all together to create this cohesive practice that has an effect on the way that we move through life. Mm, that's really beautiful and powerful. Thank you so much for sharing that that charm. It's just, um, I just love how poetic the whole culture is. Like I'm drawn into that as a poet myself. And so I'm just like, ugh. that's why you just keep seeing me over here melt as you're talking. I'm like, yes, yes. <laughs> is there anything else that you want to share about? Is there anything that's on your mind or? Uh, a lot of um, what I'm trying to push out into the world at the minute is this understanding of 
the magic within our culture that emanates from that kind of bardic uh, expression that we have and how like empowering and magical words can be because I think I, I don't know if you're very kind of involved with the witchcraft community as a whole at the minute mm -hmm. but there's this tendency within witchcraft spaces right now to see anything that is almost performative as inauthentic that if there's any sense of performativity or um, almost flamboyancy in the way that you do things that it's not as authentic as if it's more grounded so for example I'm a very uh, because of these kind of bardic influences that interject into my practice because of my cultural uh, side of my practice, um, I like a bit of theatricality. I like the idea of, you know, dressing up in the fancy robes and reciting the like really flamboyant poetry and using those things to really create a sense of enchantment. And a lot of people see that as very inauthentic. And I think that's very sad because to me, theater um, originated in ritual you know ritual is the oldest form of theater and it would be nice if we could allow ourselves to get caught up in that in that kind of flow that these words and these theatrical performative things can do to us because we all know we we live in a world where as much as the arts get poo-pooed on a lot because we, you know, we don't give funding to the arts as much as we should and stuff. We know that art moves us because we we search for it. We, we yearn for it every single day. We go to the cinema or the theatre and we we don't expect to, to sit there and not to be moved. We want something to happen to us. We want it to touch us on some level. So we know on some deep subconscious level that performance and words and you know these things can really move our spirit so I don't know I don't really understand why we're not implementing it more in magic it's something that I'm very passionate about at the minute is you know let's get back I know that it's very nice to be very grounded and to be very I, I don't know rooted in this very mundane and and almost um ordinary kind of way of celebrating magic but I also think there's a place for understanding that need we have for art to move us and seeing that as a magical thing you know that's what we want from magic is for it to move the world around us for it to cause change to send us on these transformative uh, journeys and I think art has the power to do that and we need to explore it more I think within that kind of context I hope that wasn't too getting on my high horse <laughs> no I, I honestly I think it's actually really beautiful and I really think that people you know shouldn't be listening to anyone else other than their own hearts you know what I'm saying and it's when you're authentic just be you I think too many people have an opinion when it comes to that shit it's like it's my practice bitch <laughs> you know it's like Absolutely. let me do me and um you know, I'm not, I'm more of a solitary practitioner. And so, you know, I weave magic through my everyday life. But I mean, if somebody told me just to be grounded just in the right now, it's like I am, but I'm also grounded in the other world at the same exact time. And to me, it all flows together. And it's like, I don't know, like if I didn't have this poetic side of me, this side of me that is like in love with life and like loves poetry and loves, you know, to make things really beautiful and go out of my way to make things beautiful because ritual and ceremony is very important to me. And so I love to make my spaces beautiful. I love to create my practice and like beautiful things, you know, and to me, I'm just like, that's my thing. And so if somebody else is, has something to say about it, I'm like, well, fuck you, you know? <laughs> 
in a nice way, but you know, like do your thing. I'll do my thing. So, but yeah, I mean, I think we should really just be able to express ourselves the way that it wants to come out. I think that's so beautiful in the arts really do. It is what lights up this world. Okay. Well, do you have anything else that you would want to share with the audience before you leave? Is there any last words you have or anything like that? Well, at the minute, I am currently working on book number two, which uh, should hopefully if it gets accepted, because I still need to send it into the publisher and see if they accept it. It should be out in the next kind of year or year and a half ish, something like the publishing process can take a while. But I'm working (laughs) on that one. And it's it's kind of a, a sequel to Welsh witchcraft, but also a continuation because it's taking a subject that was spoken about in Welsh witchcraft and diving much deeper into it and that's what I do with my work and if anybody kind of wants to to explore that more to explore kind of the deeper aspects because the book is essentially just an introduction and the things I've spoken about today is barely scratching the surface so um, I do have various other platforms where I try and do these things and try and push the beauty and magic of uh, the culture that I was raised in so um, if anybody has any interest in learning more about that you know you can find me on youtube and instagram and and tiktok oh my gosh i'm a bit of a mess on tiktok but i do <laughs> love jumping around and telling stories on there um as well as on my podcast i have my own podcast the welsh witch podcast which um there's not very many episodes yet but we're working on it we're getting more at the minute um and yes the book is a leaping board and there's more to come and I'm 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 very much immersed in the Awen at the minute I'm I'm kind of swimming through the Awen because I'm in the midst of writing that second book and so much like I'm looking at my desk in front of me and the piles of books that I have um <laughs> that are just I'm being I'm using them as references and resources and the notebooks that are everywhere and all these different pens and it's just like this I know it looks like a mess to me right now and I'm getting a bit like oh gosh I need to clean this up at some time but also I love it because it means that I am lost in the throes of Awen at the minute I'm so immersed in it that things like cleaning do not matter to me at the minute because it's just it's consuming and I love that I love when the inspiration consumes you to the point where it transforms you into almost a different person and you can't focus on anything else and that's definitely the type of person I am so yes I suppose I just wanted to say if anybody's interested in learning more do seek me out because I I like to try and talk about these things and I don't see myself as some you know uh, high and mighty teacher or expert that knows better than everyone else I just like experiencing it with people and trying to talk about these things on a very human level rather than from some kind of academic tower looking down at people saying no I want to explore these things with people in community so yes I suppose that's all I wanted to say <laughs> yeah and we'll have all of your links in the show notes below and you know like when I come to your channel like I said it's so cozy and it just feels like I mean I seriously like binged all of yours like while I was on my moon cycle I'm like oh I need some something cozy, Mara. And so I just like watched a bunch of your YouTube videos and it was just so amazing. And I don't know, I just love following your journey and your passion is inspiring in itself. And um, also your book, I've been listening to the audiobook. I haven't finished it, but I got to get the book in my hands. I just need a book in my hands. And since you were talking about how powerful words are, I'm sure that the whole thing is practically its own little spell, you know? <laughs> I'm really excited. So we'll have all of that linked below for everyone to find you. And just thank you so much for being here and sharing your wisdom and sharing yourself and sharing your practice. I really appreciate you being here. Thank you so much for having me. It's been absolutely lovely chatting.
Thank you so much for listening. If you want to book a healing session or mentor with me, you can go to my website at seekingwildbeauty.com. You can connect with me on Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok at Seeking Wild Beauty. If you want to support this podcast and join a community of magical women on the healing path, go to patreon.com forward slash Seeking Wild Beauty. Here you can receive the support on your self-healing journey and become a part of the Story Weaver Circle that I host online every full moon, where we reweave the stories of our lives, letting go of all the old and embracing the new. I'll connect with you soon. I hope you have a lovely week.